0: 1 by U2. It's hard to believe that that was even written in our era for its significance. And its timelessness. I was trying to think if anything's happened since that song that has the same uh, levity to it, like a uh, John Lennon's Imagine type of levity.
1: Uh, no. no. Yeah, no. <laughs> no
0: is the simple answer, Yeah.
1: Welcome to the Echo Spire Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is one versus the one. And the theme is adult contemporary ballad, the John Lennon throne. We're going to be talking about two songs that I believe, and I'll make the case, that these two songs are competing for the John Lennon throne, which was invented with the Imagine album. And the interesting thing is that the Imagine album came after the release of your song, which was Elton John's first single, i hope you don't mind i hope you don't mind that song that came out in 1970 and i think that that song directly contributed to john lennon sitting behind a piano and doing his entire imagine album the adult contemporary ballad album that invented adult contemporary music and therefore it's interesting to me that Elton John in nineteen ninety two sort of had to win back the title from you two, who in nineteen ninety one I believe won it. And I believe that they continue to hold the heavyweight championship title to the adult contemporary ballad band, as well as adult contemporary ballad anthem. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey now. Let me tell you right right off the bat,
0: this is the first time don't think I'd ever heard one of the songs. If I don't even know the song, it's not even a competition.
1: Sure. But would you agree that Elton John would be battling U-Tune, not for the song throne, but for the band throne of adult contemporary music?
0: Sure. But uh, it seems like his if he had a chance at that throne, it would have been in the 70s.
1: I think he invented the throne and John Lennon hijacked it from him. You know, nine months later with the release of Imagine.
0: Maybe you could throw Simon and Garfunkel into that mix, too.
1: They're certainly a precursor, but I would still call them folk music, not adult contemporary. And then Billy Joel came later. Billy Joel's got a lot of pop hits. Um, I would almost call him more of a piano man, huh? But not an adult contemporary. And I don't know what exactly defines it, but I think that, um, you know what? Let's go into this. So if country music is for adults, pop music is for kids. Pop music that is for adults would be adult contemporary. So in the early 60s, country music was for anybody. It only later, maybe in the late 60s, and especially in the 70s, started to become very centered towards adult themes, such as you know marriages, not breaking up with your girlfriend, but breaking up with your wife. That's country music versus pop music started out to begin with in the 50s as breaking up with your girlfriend. And to this day, that's still a major theme an adult contemporary just tends to get more cosmic and you start to bring in more elements that you'll see in these couple of songs where the adult starts to, when he starts to try to make sense of reconciliation with his girlfriend or boyfriend, they start to think of bigger, broader themes like what becomes of the brokenhearted. Or uh, in the case of this song, The One, he starts to think, you know, this is destiny. This is worlds colliding. This is sun and moon and stars. And you start to, as an adult, understand that everything is one. Everything is kind of interconnected. And that, to me, is what adult contemporary music is. To your question before, is Billy Joel adult contemporary? Not so much. He doesn't talk about these themes. He's still talking about Uptown Girl, stuff that I would think falls more in line with pop than adult contemporary
0: I feel like this adult contemporary thing is the is the shift into your 30s for the artist and then even the people listening isn't it still like okay there's only so many adult contemporary ballads and things you still have to have uptown girl in the 80s to try to get on the radio
1: Yes. And for that matter, I don't know where music is today. You know, past the 2000s, it seems like it's all kind of looping. So you got rock going back to its punk roots every once in a while, rap going back to its funk roots every once in a while. Everything is just kind of rinsing and repeating now. I think that this 1991, 1992 period was the end of the novelty of music. So, you know, it starts out the 50s. That was new. The 60s. That was new. The 70s. That was new. 80s was a, a new evolution. And even 90s was a new evolution, but this was the last decade. And to your point, yes, I think it was basically the baby boomers growing up. And Mm -hmm. there was a genre of music that pandered to the people who were no longer having girlfriends at their side, but instead were wondering what comes next when I die. Of course, this was being explored in the 60s, but in the 90s, it was explored in a different way. In some ways, one by U2, it's hard to believe that that was even written in our era for
0: its significance.
1: And its timelessness.
0: I was trying to think if anything's happened since that song that has the same uh, levity to it, like a uh, John Lennon's Imagine type of levity.
1: No, no. Yeah, no. (laughs) No is the simple answer, yeah. So here's what we got. This song is a soul, gospel, pop ballad from U2. It reached number 10 on the U.S. Billboard charts. It went eight times platinum, not the single, but the album it helped us sell, which was Octoon Baby. Joshua Tree sold 25 million. Octoon Baby sold 18 million. Thereafter, they kind of dropped off to 10 million for each record that they released over the next 10 years. Their last record released in 09 that they tried to actually actively sell, sold for five million. They sold 175 million records, and they're the 21st best selling artist of all time. Mm-hmm. So they had phenomenal success with Joshua Tree. They started to have ego infighting. They couldn't find new songs rapidly enough to sort of replenish and make a new album. So they found themselves in a studio trying to make it up as they went along, and it wasn't working until in the break of Playing Mysterious Ways, they stumbled upon this chord sequence for one, which everyone kind of quickly dropped what they were doing and they wrote the song in 15 minutes. Maybe not polished lyrics, but lyrics, chords, and the vast majority of the song was written in 15 minutes. Axl Rose has been quoted as saying it made him a fan of U2 up until this point. He was not a fan, but he heard one. They were recording it in Berlin, so you had the Berlin Wall coming down. So there was the sense of reunification, one. The 80s kind of gave a little bit of a nostalgic resurgence to the 50s. And by the early 90s, there was a nostalgic movement towards the kind of late 60s, the 67 period, which is the reason why we got the Beatles anthology and why Metallica was trying to release their own white album, the Black Album. Octoon Baby was essentially a white album. Kind of the the pictures that they put on the front of Octoon Baby are very reminiscent of the pictures that are inside the white album sleeve. There was this resurgence of 1970. 1967 culture, which is when we started to formulate our band and the new garage band explosion occurred in 1993-94 which again was an echo of what happened in 1963, four, five, six, seven, with the British invasion. So you had everything kind of looping. Bono was skeptical of the whole hippie movement. He was kind of looking back on it and thinking how empty the movement really was in retrospect. So he was a little bit sour on the notion of one a drug-infused experience. Everything is one, man. Plus the band had fracture relationships. So he was looking at the band as a unit that was coming apart at the seams. So one basically embodies this kind of binary nature. Is it true? Is it false? Zero or one? Is it complete or is it fragmented? There's also the duality nature of one such as yin, yang, good, bad. And there's the micro versus macro duality. So in the song one, it's largely in the verses just about a relationship that's failing Mm -hmm. and a lot of questions are being asked. But when he jumps to the chorus, similar to what we discussed with what becomes of the broken hearted, he gets more existential and starts to relate it to one love, one life, one need in the night. So let's hop over before we get into analyzing the song architecture there. Let's hop over to talking about stats on The One by Ellen John and Bernie Taupin came out in 1992. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they released the song a few, six, seven, eight months later. After this song came out from you 2 I think everyone was inspired when they heard it. And I think Elton John figured, hey, I got to get the adult contemporary ballad John Lennon thrown back. So he read these lyrics from Bernie Taupin, which is how they worked for 30 years up to this point. This record went to number nine. So this was a big record, despite the fact that you hadn't heard it before. Quick aside, Bernie Taupin helped write. We Built This City by Starship. We built this city on rock and roll. So that's that's a Bernie Toppin poem. VH1, rate that as the worst song of all time. (laughs) I like that song, but I grant it that if anyone doesn't like it, yes, I can see it. So this was Elton John's comeback album since having to go into drug and drinking and bulimia rehab in 1990. And just like Bono saw, there was change in the air. You know, Jesus Jones was recording right here, right now. And Elton wanted his destiny song. And he saw these lyrics on paper and he started writing to it. It came pretty easily to him. Let me actually go into a few accolades of Elton John. The guy's got 58 songs that charted in the top 40 27 that charted in the top 10 and nine number ones. He sold 300 million records. Again, contrast that with you 2 who sold 175 million records. Elton John is a beast. One other thing before we start getting into analyzing these songs, there's three other songs with the title one, Three Dog Night, In 1969, had the highest charting song out of all the songs we'll talk about with the title one. Theirs charted at number five in 1969. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. It was written by Harry Nilsson, who did not have a hit with it, but it went on to be uh, covered again by Amy Mann in 1999 on the Magnolia Magnolia. album. The interesting thing is that she did it the way Harry Nilsson did it. So if Mm. you think about Three Dog Nights version, that big rock and roll song, they added a lot to the song because Harry Nilsson's version was not that. Another one was Metallica's from 1989. And I would not doubt that this also inspired U2's one because even though it's a heavy metal song, this did get a lot of airplay. And the video is pretty fascinating. Probably one of the most groundbreaking videos in MTV history. It was a black and white video where they're showing how this guy comes back from war having lost his limbs, his hearing his ability to speak, he's basically just a mind. Metallica was all about making the concept of one basically being a singularity. You've lost everything, and everything is kind of collapsed onto it, just a mind. What is that, really, to live that way? The other one was Creed's one, which charted at number 70, 1997. Mm. <laughs> one, oh one, the only thing is one. So, let's talk about the architecture of U2's One. Here's the sequence. We got a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, outro. The bridge is the love is a temple, love the higher law. Love is a temple, love is a higher law. It's really just a C to A minor, C to A minor kind of sequence. The verse chords are A minor, D, F, G. The chorus is C, A minor, F major, seventh, C. These are boxes, nothing worth really going into. Hold
0: on. It's not. That interesting, but the, the D is major in the key of C. I feel that does give it a slightly, because it goes A minor to the, to the D major.
1: Yeah, you're right. That deserves a call out. Small call out. So going back to uh, the, the mood of this song, he calls on humanity. That's kind of the gospel. Brothers, sisters, Uh, the fragility of life. We get to carry each other, carry each other. Quick songwriting lesson. When in doubt, use questions. Did I disappoint you? Leave a bad taste in your mouth. Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. It's just a little bit more um, tantalizing.
0: Back to your earlier point, too, about these lyrics. It just didn't occur to me there was a, a relationship song. Uh-huh. So I was thinking of it more as the bigger uh, message to it. And then there's that line, uh, love is a temple, love the higher Allah. And then you ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. And it's right. like, it's this perfect little balance of the sort of the personal. Uh, versus relation. the macro. Exactly.
1: It's the micro macro framework that I spoke of where it's the duality. It's the nature of one. There's one versus two and there's one versus zero. Universal and personal. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Another lesson we can take away. You can plant anguishing lyrics, which these seem to be on paper. You can plant them in a hopeful tune and kind of reach that irony balance. Uh, People told Bono, I play one at my wedding. And Bono's like, why? It's a song about breaking up. In fact, it's a song about a failed marriage. That's not obvious in the lyric. It sounds hopeful.
0: Sorry, Bono, but we don't all, we're not mind readers.
1: When you're just listening to it, you know, in passing, It sounds like a celebration. One love.
0: Yeah, she he's been married to the same woman
1: since the 80s. For him, it was a breakup of the marriage of his band. Okay, jumping over to the other side of the fence real quick. The one. The sequence is verse, pre-chorus, chorus. chorus. They repeat that. Then they do a 16-bar piano solo. Then they do a few choruses, and that's it. The mood of this song is destiny, self-assuredness wholeness. In other words, one has been found. The one he's been looking for, he has finally found. In fact, let me read some of the lyrics. Dancing, ocean, running, sand, spirit born, earth, water, fire, hands instant, love, second, hammer, reality, spine, pieces, fit, freedom fields, horses, stars collide, shadows, sun, caravans, drunken nights, dark hotels, chances, silence, Cain, as in Cain and Abel from the Bible, future. So Bernie Taupin is referencing is many big cosmic historical ancient uh, references he can get across to put across this big idea of i finally found the one within the midst of all of this information the chords being used i'll just go through it real quick because you know talking about musics like dance and architecture the verse is d with a c bass and then it cuts over to c sus2 pre-chorus chord structures b flat e flat f with an a bass b flat And where it gets a little interesting is in the chorus, it drops to an F sharp, which is a flat six chord. So if you're in the key of C, that would be a G sharp. Or if you're in the key of E, that would be a C. I did a little bit of research on it. We used it in our songwriting all the time. Beatles used it in their songwriting all the time. I tried to figure out who used it first. And I think it's Buddy Holly in the pretty, 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 pretty Peggy Sue. In that Mm -hmm. song, they're in the key of A and he hits the F. And he does it just for like a middle four. It's not even like a middle eight. But in any case, I've always wondered what that chord was. And as I started thinking about it, I'm like, in the 50s, did anyone hit a chord that was kind of weird? I'm like, yeah, Peggy Sue. Funny enough, I ended up discovering a YouTube channel where they're talking about that. Paul McCartney and um, Ronnie, who's the guy from Rolling Stones? Ronnie Waits? Ronnie Wood. Ronnie Wood. Well, Ronnie Wood did a kind of a show in 2013. He interviewed a few people. Actually, Mark Ronson from last week's show was on there, as well as Paul McCartney and some others. Paul McCartney's talking about that flat six chord, and he references Peggy Sue. So that must be one of the first times that the flat six was used. Quick lesson here. Anytime you're writing on the piano, you can use that bass. And that's all Elton John's doing throughout this entire song. He's using that bass to kind of drop it down the descending bass line. And then when he wants to get complicated and use that flat six, he goes G, F, and then he picks it up to F sharp. And that's his flat six before coming back up to B flat. But he uses the fifth as a bass and F. Point is, is that you can always move that bass around pretty easily when you're writing on piano. Just think about when you're writing on guitar that you can still do it. It's just not as intuitive as when you're on a piano to be moving that bass around. Right. And it's very effective in this song. Oftentimes, I find it to be just distracting. But in this song, if you don't play it, the chords with the appropriate bass note that's being plucked from the piano, it doesn't sound like you're playing the same song. So you have to. Let's talk about production. Brian Eno, who's known as being their longtime producer, I think he entered on their third or fourth album once they uh, were starting to make it big. They requested to work with him because they liked some of the ambiotic tones he'd been putting out. He had worked with Talking Heads, and Talking Heads were doing some kind of cutting edge stuff. So they, they brought him on. By the time they were working with him six, seven years later on this record, Brian Eno had a new working method with him. And he said, you know what? I'm going to bring in Daniel Lenoir, my longtime engineer, to produce the album. And instead, I'm only going to come around every – 30 days or whatever. So I can keep my ears fresh. Be that uh, the guy who can see the 30,000 foot view and I don't get lost in the trees with the rest of you. So he came back. He loved all their new material except for guess what? One. Really? In fact, he said he hated it. And when they tried to play with him, like, what are you talking about? It's a good song. He's like, you know, I can kind of see why you might like this song. But it's not the song that you fell in love with. This song is not what you think it is. So what he did was he had them do some recordings and then he took it back and made like a really pared down edit of it to show them how the song could be more vulnerable and less anthem He had Edge add a few specific parts that are crucial to the sound of the record. The crying guitar, the... Ah, ah. You'll hear that guitar throughout the entire song and that's Eno's contribution going I needed this song to sound like it was crying because I needed it to sound vulnerable this song one starts out with stick clicks with lots of reverb on it it starts out with the guitar riff some light hi hat a lot of high threshold gain on Bono's vocal which is why it sounds like it's almost disembodied from the rest of the song it's so bright he's speaking in a raspy, breathy voice, which he kind of become to be known for. But he really took it to the next level in the song. This song really hugged his voice. There's a tambourine that enters on the first chorus. And then thereafter, it's off to the races. By the time they get to the second verse, they enter in new lead guitar parts, an organ effect, kind of funk tone on the guitar. The drums enter on that second verse, and it's kind of in its groove. By the time they get to the second chorus, they pull the funk guitar out. And they allow some other high-pitched guitar effects to kind of come in and send you back to the third verse. In the third verse, you start to get that string synthesizer that they use on mysterious ways in many songs throughout the album, where they kind of have the the monotone note that overlays across different chords. And in the fourth chorus, they just continue to mix the guitar louder and louder. Like every single chorus is mixed completely differently. Let's talk about the one, uh, Elton John. One thing I noticed about this production, you know, this is Elton John in like the beginning of the third act of his career. He was a mainstay in the 70s, a mainstay in the 80s, and here he was, act 3, still a mainstay, but I'm not impressed with the drumming on that album. I did a little bit of research. And I found out his longtime drummer Nigel Olsen who was with him in the 70s and 80s basically left, rejoined him in the 2000s. So in the 90s he didn't have his longtime drummer and it It's funny to see that it actually stands out. If you listen to it, it's just kind of blasé drumming, sort of like Steven Adler, how everyone hated him in Guns N' Roses. So they kicked him out uh, after the first album or uh, the drummer for Oasis. They didn't like him, so they kicked him out. Or Pete Best. You know, drumming is one of those things where if you're a layman and you're not much into music, all drumming sounds the same to you. But if you do sit down, start to critically analyze, you can start to figure out some guys just don't have it. And I don't know what that is, if it's a sense of rhythm or it's a sense of novelty in their fills or what they're doing. But I noticed that this was pretty flat footed, as well as the lead guitar is pretty flat footed. But the lead guitar is from his longtime guitarist. David Johnstone was his name. Never had any other meaningful work outside of working with Ellen John. So I think he must have just been friends with Elton and Ellen kept him around. There's a lot of synthesizer used. This is kind of in the the shadows of the 80s. The 80s are still lingering in 1992. So a lot of synthesizers. The beat is the number one thing that I would say is driving this song. It's the adult contemporary groove. It's the heartbeat. It's the one and three and three. It's a lot of elegant piano. It's a lot of uh, bass synthesizers, which are kind of cool sounding. Elton John singing his own harmonies, which is interesting because he he oftentimes does have, you know, background singers. But I have to sort of sometimes wonder why, you know, in the 60s, it was common for people to sing their own harmony. They sing harmony to themselves. But past then, background singers came more in vogue. And I don't know why Elton John is singing his own harmonies here because he's not on the rest of the album. But on this song, he is. There's a very abrupt change when they get back to the verse. It's just lazy, you know, when they're coming out of that chorus to get back to the verse, they just suddenly stop the song and, you know, go to like a tambourine only effect. And I give this production a five out of 10. It gets the job done, but you know, there's nothing artistic going on above and beyond, you know, some studio musicians doing what they do best, but they're not really putting their back into it. Versus on the U2 side, that's just it's a band and their element. Uh, they might have been breaking up 15 minutes before this song was written, but by the end of this 15 minute period, these guys were probably stronger than ever.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: They catch that on record. Okay, so there's also a very weak piano solo in the one. It's amazing to me that Elton John, who's a piano player and a great piano player, you could tell it sounds like a demo. He's just kind of, they say, Elton, you got 16 bars here. Do something. And he just starts to play meaningless notes that don't really go anywhere. and Then they hit back into the chorus. I will say that Elton John puts his back into the final delivery of when he says, Ooh, baby, you're the one. The other interesting thing I want to note about the chord sequence that I forgot to talk about is that it's a 10 bar chorus, not an eight bar, not a 16 bar, not a 12 bar, 10 bars. And that's very John Lennon like where he's uh, making a pivot so that it's a 10 bar and not an eight bar or 12 bar is when they get to the line. When stars collide like you and I, here comes no shadows block the sun by him putting that line in there, it extended it to extra bars. And then he goes into the hook. You're all I ever needed. Ooh, baby, you're the one. Let's talk about some of the, uh, the most notable parts of the U2 song one. Awesome. Raspy voice. The best raspy voice delivery of all time. <laughs> Edge is totally capitalizing on his ability to introduce maybe five or six different guitar licks in this song. Little leads that he comes up with mixed very loudly. I do think that Edge and Bono, uh, even though people tend to think of U2 as being a band, I think Bono and Edge were Lennon and McCartney and they did suck up as much bandwidth as they, as they could when it came to the mixing room.
0: One of the stories I remember about one, when he got to the part with the lyric, we get to carry each other. Uh-huh. I don't know what it was, but originally it was something else. It was probably, we have to, or we must carry each other. He didn't like it. Yeah. And he thought it he was too, it was too, what you were kind of talking about earlier. Preachy, too, preachy on the nose, in in a sense, uh, hippie. And then he stumbled upon the word get and it just shows that like that little one word difference. We get to, it's a a privilege to be here, to get, to experience.
1: I think they called it a grace note was introduced.
0: Yeah, I like that. Um, Yeah, I like that that connotation.
1: And on the other side with the one, Elton John, the thing that stands out most notably to me personally are the the sequencing of the chords. But probably to the layman, it's just got a great hook. It's got the big setup and the big payoff. You're all I ever needed. Ooh. Baby, you're the one stands up to the MTV video five second feature test. So remember back when MTV still played music videos, they would have these like quick features of different songs and they play like six seconds of this video and then six seconds of this video and tease out what's new this week. Well, I think I remember singing this song. Lots of songs have great hooks. This is just one of them, but I I have to commend this one for being one of the more concise hooks where you can fit it into a five-second MTV video feature clip.
0: Remember if this song actually had a video?
1: Yeah, it did. It had a good video, too. It's just Elton John's face projected onto a moving flag that's waving in the wind, but it's a cool effect. You know, just like you 2 had a lot of cool videos. I don't think that the one video was not that cool, but uh, the Mysterious Waves video This was the beginning of the period where editors just got access to all this different kind of software where they could run images through different filters. So they were having all kinds of fun with it. You know, if you think of the Mysterious Waves video where Bono's the video is kind of converging onto itself. In fact, let me say something about that. The internet comes about this year, 1991. It it wasn't widely distributed, but computer technology and everything. This was like a new dawn for man. This is one of those times where there was the farming revolution. There was the industrial revolution. There was the telecommunications revolution, which you could include record technology and, and the electronic revolution. But the internet revolution started here. And I think that was our last revolution. And maybe our last revolution ever, because even if we end up getting new technologies, they will all have kind of spawned from the Internet going airborne, which happened in 1991. All that to say that these two songs that came up at this period, it's not a coincidence that you have two songs that attempted to sort of interconnect The Cosmos and Brother and Sisterhood and Metallica releasing their one two years before. There was something in the air. Creatives, they hear it on the news and they want to put it into some kind of a nugget, kind of memorialize it for people to listen to. That's what we're talking about. These two songs, as well as Metallica's one, deserves to have an honorable mention. Real quick, let me just talk about the influences here. So with Bono, The Beatles' Let It Be and John Lennon's Imagine Inspire one. For the one, Elton John's, I think that U2's one, man, this is so complicated to talk about. There's there's so much two and one going on, I can't help it. U2's one is an influencer. John Lennon oftentimes used the Destiny theme with Yoko, and I think Elton John borrows heavily on Destiny themes. And I think John Lennon's piano routine with, you know, Think Imagine or Jealous Guy. I mean, John Lennon lifted it from Elton John. But then John Lennon made it a John Lennon thing, and Elton John, I think, was still heavily influenced by even John Lennon's hijacking of Elton John's style. And I think what's downstream from these songs is Coldplay's The Scientists." Nobody Hmm. said it was easy. (laughs) When you're talking about upstream
0: and downstream influences on, let's say, one, One by U2, well, it's not like they sat down and thought about this and planned it or had the title you said it came out in 15 minutes of
1: right but it's hanging around i think that they have conversations just like we had conversations as a band and you know a month later it might just have managed to erupt in the middle of a jamming session where they wanted to write a song called one because it had been on their mind.
0: Okay, I didn't know if you were just saying this is probably what was going on in the subconscious of Bono yeah. in
1: that moment. That's all. I don't think that they said, let's write the answer to Metallica. <laughs> With this, let's talk about what's going to be on next week's episode. We're going to do a Christmas song episode. And I think we're going to do two of them. This first one, Christmas, War is Over, 1971, John Lennon versus yeah. Paul McCartney. Wonderful Christmas Time, 1979. The episode will not hinge so much on comparing these two songs. It will be more of a John Lennon versus Paul McCartney style. So there's going to be a lot to talk about. And then on the following, we're going to do two epic Christmas songs that I won't reveal until next week's episode. This (laughs) podcast is in support of a project I hope to release in 2020. It's a social network for aspiring songwriters to share and collaborate with other songwriters through gamification of the constructive feedback process. We'll release another episode next week, Christmas episode. See you then.